a podcast for dads who love music, made by dads who love music. And now, your hosts, Josh and Joe. Hello, and welcome to Dad Rocks, the podcast about being a dad and loving music and how the two intersect in our lives. I'm Josh, and I'm here with my co-host, Joe. What's up, Josh? And our producer, Steve. Hey, guys. Today, our guest is Billy Martin. Billy is most well-known for being the drummer of the jazz trio Modesky, Martin, and Wood, but he is also an artist, an educator, and most importantly, a father of two young men. Billy, welcome to Dad Rocks. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Nice to see you. I nice see you. hear you. <laughs> First off, how have the, the last two years been for you and your family, you know, because with COVID and everything? Yeah, actually, it's been brought us together more, actually, to be frank and honest, which has been uh, been a good thing because the boys going through adolescence, you know, up to this point, now they're kind of young men who had some trials and tribulations of uh, separation and, and things like that in different ways. It's been really kind of healing in a way, you know, coming together and, and, mm-hmm. and getting through this for sure. Yeah, that's ultimately been good. Challenging maybe for my youngest, who's 18, who, you know, was graduating his senior year of high school. So that, that year where there was no hanging out at the school at all with his friends. So he's pretty much holed up at home, a little bit of contact with some friends, but uh, yeah, other than that, it's for the family. It's good. Like we could just had to be together, you know, they're all living with us at home and working. So as good. well, essential working my older son. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Uh, what, What's his job? What was his essential job? Actually, my wife and my son, Dakota, my wife, Phaedra and Dakota, were working at Whole Foods in Paramus, New Jersey, which is oh, yeah. kind of pretty busy. Oh, yeah. Amazing. Oh, Joe yeah. and I live I, right I, there. I go I'm there in, a bunch. Yep. Yeah. Okay. I'm in Oradell, so it's like oh, right around the corner. What? Yeah. Oh, I'm in Englewood. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's interesting. Okay. Yeah, my wife was working Close for by. about three or four years at uh, in the health and body, what do they call it? But yeah, so they were full on like mm. nonstop busy yeah. doing that essential work. I think my son Dakota got a very mild case very early on. Uh, other than that, mm. none of us got it. But yeah, they were working and, and Sawyer was just really home, just being senior in high school. And I was uh, hunkering down, you know, working on making the transition, create a music studio to get yeah. sort of online programs going, which was something I wanted to do anyway. Very so cool. We were yeah. all been kind of busy and doing our thing and living together. You mentioned this and, you know, your youngest son just graduated high school. So were there any kind of, you know, strong emotions that you went through or any kind of almost like a, well, I've done, I've made it, you know, kept them alive (laughs) through their childhood and now they're off or anything like that? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, sure. I think every rite of passage, you know, whatever it might be, graduating high school, Today, Sawyer got his driver's license. I mean, my youngest, Sawyer, has like just got back from Barcelona. So he's taking like a gap year. Oh, wow. Or maybe, I don't know, go right into a career. He could go to Rutgers and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. He's accepted Mm -hmm. to some universities. He went to Barcelona, lived with a family that we know closely. Actually, their daughter lived with us for a summer. And so he stayed with them. They had their own restaurant in Barcelona. So all these things, but yes, to answer your question. Yeah. I mean, of course it's, it's very special, uh, emotional, you know, you feel your heart, you know, you're connected, you know, it's just, it's a love thing. And so it's, it's a beautiful thing. Sometimes it's scary. Sometimes it's, you know, sad and mixed blues feeling, you know, but, uh, yeah, overall it's working out, but there's been lots of challenges too, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. 
I'm a dad of two kids. My oldest is a son who's uh, 14, freshman in high school. So uh, hearing those stories of you know, your son getting his license and then graduation, I'm just like, it's right around the corner. But I feel yeah. the same with us. Like we kind of slowed everything down. My kids were involved with sports. I don't know if your kids were involved with kind of sports or anything like that. But with lockdown, it really seemed to slow everything down, like you said. And like it kind of brought us all together. We were just home every day, 24-7, basically. So <laughs> I could totally relate to that. Yeah. Yeah. I can't imagine what it would be like if it was five or 10 years, you know, ago and this happened. Yeah. What would exactly. that be like if they were your son's age or if they were younger, whatever, going through puberty, who knows, being defiant, yeah. you know, and just being like, I'm out of here and creating some kind of feeling of danger and stuff. <laughs> it's all, it's all part of life, man. You know, sports, my yeah. oldest Dakota was really into soccer for, for many years. He was, he was cool. Same with my son. Yep. Pretty good athlete, actually, but he and then he got into drumming. Speaking of dad rocks, he was like school rock drummer. <laughs> cool. Kind of like, oh, nice. Wasn't really sure what he wanted to get, you know, at that age, you know. And then he transitioned from soccer to playing, you know, for, for a couple of two or three years and really did like, you know, that was a good thing to see happen connecting with a few different age groups, younger and older, playing drums for different groups in school of rock. So then he kind of like got out of the sports and then just kind of like did that for a while. Then got into a bunch of trouble. Yeah, for years, <laughs> lots of trouble. <laughs> well, my, my but, son, I've been trying, as you see behind me, there's a drum set. I'm, I'm yeah, a drummer as well. <laughs> and cool. I've had no luck right now getting him into, um, into rock music and stuff. He's dabbled a little bit on the drums. So I'm hoping like your son, he'll go, he'll transition from, you know, the soccer world, which is cool too. You could do both. Hopefully eventually he gets an interest in drumming. I was going to ask you that next, if any of your sons, you know, play music or we're going to follow you into the music world. It's interesting. No, not, I don't see that right now. Dakota, the older one, he's good. He's just a natural. He even sat in with him as far wood. Like he, <laughs> we did oh, this really? festival cool. in Jamaica. It was the Little Feet has this festival every uh, oh. year mm. and it's like a weekends after weekends of being in a resort and different bands come down and play and so they invited us down but anyway that was really cool to have my son sit in play a tune you know i got off the drums yeah. and just watched it was like whoa he's playing <laughs> in front of a festival audience and stuff so that That's was so a cool. proud moment actually but then yeah. after that it dropped off he just completely like has no interest and I, I got to say, you know, I have to let him find it for himself. You know, I, I need him to hear his own voice. I can tell he's still thinking about it. He talks about it more with his mom than, than me. And like, you know, I always invite him into the studio just like right now. And he has a girlfriend. <laughs> they both have girlfriends. <laughs> well, there you go. That's, yeah, that's, that's, that's the, the main thing probably right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And he's busy working his butt off at, you know, the grocery store here. And I hope I've been a good enough influence in some ways. But like, you really have to let them discover their own way in whether it is like someday they say oh man i didn't realize dad has a drum set for 10 years i never <laughs> let me play, play it you know and oh you never know when it's going to happen it's sort of just like music and you know, especially improvising it's it's about the timing of things you can't force something when you improvise you can't preconceive like this is what is going to happen that's not improvising and that's not listening and being in the moment I think it's the same thing with raising kids. You have to realize there's everybody has different timing and things will resonate with them at different times and when you think it should. But there are things, rites yeah. of passages that happen. Puberty, you know, it's like getting yeah. your license, you're graduating, you know, staying alive. <laughs> <laughs> so. yeah. Well, I mean, I'm I'm just at the beginning stages. I got a three year old oh, right now, so he's Wonderful. you know, oh, thanks. But 
you know, was being a professional musician, you were in the you know music world pretty early on in, in your adulthood. Was fatherhood something that you always had on, you know, your life plan or is that something just kind of happened and you kind of fell into it? The latter. Yeah, I, I didn't think about it much. I didn't like dream about and think about it. I, I thought that there would, would be possible, but there's always a part of me always like I'm the younger brother of three. So everybody is like, no matter what age you are, I'm always the younger brother, you know, to you, whoever relationship I'm having. So it's a relationship with the world. Everything's sort of like, how's that possible? And I have kids. But when I met Phaedra, I was like, it just kind of was a natural thing. You know, we got married and then two years later, we decided, let's let's start thinking about having kids. And boom, <laughs> Dick Dakota showed up like magic. Yeah. And then three years later, sort of, it was kind of a magical thing. It doesn't always happen that way. But for me, it did. It just was like a natural thing. And, you know, I had I had really great parents. I mean, as far as lucky, you know, they never divorced and they not, not sometimes I think maybe they should have divorced you know, the way they fight and stuff. Uh, but as far as parents go, they're always very much connected and rooting me on and supporting me and just, you know, the love sometimes too much at times. But that's not a bad thing. I know your dad was an accomplished violinist and playing around New York City all the time. So, uh, you know, talk about influence. I'm sure you were heavily influenced by him. Is that how you got into really jazz music and music in general? Uh, Joe, that's a great, that's really nice of you to bring that up because I, I never thought of it like now reversing the dad role as like my dad. What was he to me? Yeah, that was really influential. And I really appreciate it more so now, like the, the things that he exposed me to and honestly, I think unknowingly, I think my dad is a natural and it just comes naturally to him. He's a very generous person. He's a great host. And so being his son was like an awesome thing. I love my dad and he always gave me love, you know, like deep love. And also let me, you know, he gave me the just the right amount of distance to, you know, find things out on my own and stuff. But like, yeah. He was playing in the New York City Ballet and the New York City Opera Orchestras one season, then the other one. They would just flip at Lincoln Center in New York City. Mm. And there would be times where he would take me to rehearsals. And I have a feeling it was just because my mom needed a break or she was away or whatever. You know, she was teaching dancing school, like, you know, 200 students in our neighborhood in New York. So I was this little kid. My dad took me to a rehearsal or he took me to uh, he was doing like maybe a movie or a recording. Mm. And so I would sometimes get up in the recording studio where he was doing a session. And I would sit in the control room and watch them work, watch the conductor and watch really famous people come in and out. So, you know, a lot of amazing people. Milton Berle to Julie Andrews to Ben Vereen to older generations. Oh, yeah. No, stuff, we, but, yeah. yeah. The know, legends, though. Yeah. He made records with Madonna. You know, he didn't even know who she was. Oh, wow. He's just like, yeah, that, that, you know, <laughs> he just was so disconnected from what was hip and what was happening, you know. But I was like, oh, my God. One time he took me, and I was older, I was probably in my late teens, took me to the recording session of The Untouchables, which oh. was Ennio Morricone, you know, he's a, mm. you know, one, of the, right. one of the greatest film composers. He just got an Academy Award for his lifetime, you know, a couple of years ago. But, you know, he was doing The Untouchables, which was the uh, Brian De Palma film with Sean Connery. And uh, yeah, mm -hmm. I was like, oh, my God, you know, they had like an 80-piece orchestra, this huge studio. Wow scoring this film and then De Palma kicked me out. He's like, who's this kid? What's he doing here? But my dad would bring me in. He'd sneak me in and stuff like that. And uh, that was one of the situations where he would like, he didn't care what anybody said. He would sneak me in and say, check this out. Or like, oh, you're interested in that? You know, 
And so that is such a precious, you know, gift. Watching him work and being like amazed by the the level of production and stuff that they did with orchestral music. And that's really drawn me to it even more. I always wanted to be involved with orchestras. And now I'm getting more involved now in my life, later life, and doing film stuff myself. And my mom. My mom had me tap dancing, you know, when I was young. And that contributed to my rhythm, you know. Mm-hmm. But my dad, uh, as far as jazz goes, it wasn't, it was more of a classical world. He admired jazz. He loved jazz. But it was my mom who had the Duke Ellington, Count Basie, because she was a dancer. And that was that kind of music, you know, that along with other stuff and corny stuff, too. But my dad was always turning me on to like, oh, movies like, you know, we would go we'd go to the Zigfield in Midtown and we'd see the premiere of 2001 Space Odyssey or Fantasia. Wow. Wow. And because of the orchestra, you know, it was, you know, yes. and so those would be big events, artistic cinema and classical music. But he also was an engineer as a family of engineers. So he built stereos, mm. he had a side gig before I was born. He had a they, they had a hi-fi shop and they huh. would build stereos awesome. for people from scratch. Oh, wow. And then he taught me how to like, you know, edit tape that splice reel to reel tape and like record things. And he always had this, you know, the latest equipment that was like the, the first computers and with like software that would record and so wow. all of that came from my dad and I just you know I ate it I, I would just was very receptive to it my other brothers weren't so much I, I learned a lot that's why you see I have like I build the studio in my backyard and I do all these yeah. things with my son Dakota helped me with build, yeah. build that studio the two of us okay, uh, and great. just that's because great. because my dad you know really exposed me to hey this is how you use this tool check this out you know, computers, like not just like, you know, computers, electronics, recording equipment, but like fixing his car and he had every damn tool you could imagine, you know, and he was so excited about the tools. I wasn't excited about, is geeky about the tools, (laughs) but definitely encouraged me to like, I could do this. Let me try to fix this myself. You could DIY stuff and everything. Yeah. 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 It's crucial stuff. Thanks for bringing that up, Joe. Now it makes me appreciate my dad so much, you know, which I do anyway, (laughs) but Yeah. (laughs) So I guess, you know, can we assume that when you decided that you were going to take a jump into the professional music world, that your parents were, you know, very supportive of that? Or, uh, you know, you... Was your, were they kind of like, well, maybe you think should think about something else? <laughs> well, it's interesting because, yes, they were really excited for me to be a drummer in the world that they knew, which was uh, Broadway pits and orchestra mm. and stages, jazz, you know, like stuff that they were familiar with. They weren't sure about this music with Medesky Martin Wood or the downtown music <laughs> I was doing or the you know, even the even at first the Brazilian music I was doing, and then they fell in love with it later. But uh, they didn't really understand it, and they were uh, concerned about like how can he make a living if he's not in the union and getting health right. benefits yeah, like right. his dad <laughs> did or his mom did when she was in the Rockettes. You know, it was a very different thing. It was like you know having health insurance, blah, 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 all those things that I could care less about when you're a kid. You don't you don't think of those things. <laughs> And you're, hu- and, and you're hustling, yeah. getting all this amazing experience. So, yeah, I was experimenting a lot and I was definitely getting into things that they didn't understand. So there was that excitement of like they could see I was talented and they were really proud of me. And I crossed over into playing Broadway shows now and then. And they were like at, very, at a very young age and they were just like, he's made it, you know. He's got his foot in the door. And then like, you know, a couple of years later, well, maybe I, and then I joined another, you know, I toured with Chuck Mangione, like they knew. And he was like, 
they were very proud of that. But then it was a certain point where I was like, I'm really going in a different direction, you know, something much more new and, um, you know, more independent. And they were like, oh, they, I think they were getting nervous at that point. So <laughs> my dad, one thing that he, which was really cool, he's like, you're both your brothers went to college. I put them through college. If you're not going to go to school and you're just already working, I'll pay for any lessons you want to take with anybody, you know, because oh, he, wow. he knew the value of private That's lessons. Great. He knew how powerful that could be if there were the right people. He actually connected me with some, some good teachers. My first teacher, Alan Herman and Paul Price, who was, you know, incredible uh, classical percussionist who worked with John Cage and with the yeah. orchestras. And I did that for years, you know. I don't know how I got to this from what you... But, uh, <laughs> no, no, it's just a question, you know, perfectly because, you know, I can tell you my brother, he was in punk bands and then he's now he's in the EDM world. And initially when he was going to make that, they were going to go full force. My mom was like, you can do it, but you need to make sure you get your degree just in case. Like she was supportive, <laughs> but she was like, yeah. you got to finish your degree. Yeah. And so, and, but now he's, you know, he made a career out of it and she's yeah. super excited and supports him all the time. So that's great. That's beautiful. And uh, we were kind of curious too, how was the New York jazz scene in like the 80s and 90s when uh, you were kind of just getting started? We know that like smooth jazz was like in the mainstream, but obviously you were probably into the more avant-garde. How was it in, in that time period? Yeah, that's a good question, Steve. Um, yeah, so all that was happening, there was really cornball type of smooth stuff going on, not just in the jazz world, but in the commercial world of radio and then there was like really more extreme experimental stuff and so in the 80s in the 80s it was really for me a turning point like I was uh in the early I graduated in 1981 in a high school in New Jersey my parents had moved out in 75 so from we I grew up in the city you know 200 street and Broadway the very tip of Manhattan and we moved to Jersey in the 75. So, you know, uh, I graduated in 81 and I was kind of making trips back into the city for lessons and clubbing with my friends. We'd go to Studio 54 or like Limelight or whatever, you know, clubs uh, to just for like disco clubs, like just to hang out on the scene. And, and there was also that influence of the dance hall world of DJs and sometimes bands playing uh, even like, you know, Motown bands would be playing this place called Heartbreak and they spin reggae or, 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 you know, whatever it might be like at different hours, you know, like you go to these clubs uh, was an influence that was going on. Uh, and then there was like punk rock scene and then there was like uh, the jazz scene was kind of for me, it was sort of like I was starting to connect with the Brazilian music. I was going to Drummers Collective, oh. studying with a lot of teachers privately and then i took this brazilian samba class and that really changed my life it nice. really basically exposed me to like you know different rhythms uh brazilian afro pan-african rhythms and that's where my book really is inspired from is making it's this connection book. yeah I, thank you making cool. this connection with all these different rhythmic patterns you know that that uh and and that that can be you know you can hear it in samba you can hear it in afro-cuban you can hear it in Salsa, you can hear it in Boogaloo, you can hear it in Bo Diddley, you can, you know, Bossa Nova, Second Line, New Orleans. But anyway, so the Brazilian thing really introduced me to a whole new thing. It was a, it was a very, a very amazing time. And that exposed me to Bob Moses, Jaco Pastorius, John Schofield, Bill Frizzell, Pat Metheny. All these people were really into the Brazilian scene. There was a, there was definitely a wave of Brazilian music coming to New York in the eighties. And I just happened to be there at the right time. And I ended up playing with bands in these clubs 
And then I ended up playing in not just traditional Brazilian samba bands, but also as a percussionist in bands with Bob Moses. And then that's how I met and played with these people like, you know, Bill Vizel, Chaco, Pamathini and, and, you know, like these, and, and these were for me, the jazz, the real thing that was happening at the time. It wasn't the, the smooth jazz. It wasn't, maybe some of it was a little fusion-y connection. Definitely. I liked fusion too at the time. Some of the song I like the corny stuff too sometimes, but then it was like the Brazilian stuff crossed over in those worlds, you know. Mm -hmm. So it was like it kind of like as long as the Brazilian groove the percussion was happening, I didn't care what you know notes they were playing or melodies at that time. I just loved playing that music. So and then I met Bob Moses, and you know they introduced me to a real the real real scene of of jazz musicians who were rooted you know in playing traditionally, and then then you know growing up watching. John Coltrane and Ornette Coleman and Miles and all that stuff and then being influenced by them and then getting into more rock, jazz, fusion, Larry Coryell, all this stuff, Miles, Electric and things like that. Yeah. And those things were influences that were happening to me. I was realizing that was happening. Uh, and at the same time, Afro-Cuban, Brazilian, all this stuff was happening. So then from there evolved like getting gigs as a percussionist. I was playing drum set and doing all kinds of gigs as a drummer, you know, club dates and off-Broadway, Broadway, off-off-Broadway, burlesque shows, yeah. all kinds of like cabaret gigs. It's cool. And then club dates. And then that just evolved into later, like after touring with Chuck Benjoni, I kind of hit a wall. I was like, there was something that wasn't right. And I broke up with my girlfriend. I had moved to like Brooklyn under the Manhattan Bridge, Dumbo, and that area where like it's super hip now. Like it was like dangerous to live there, but a lot of artists were living yeah. in these uh, cheaply and I was as well. And so I was playing in the Lounge Lizards at the time. So this is the transition from going from this period where I was like lost and, and something wasn't right. And then after touring with Chuck Mangione, I kind of crashed and just like took a break and then... I went on this long bicycle ride on the West Coast, like a three-week bike ride, living off my bicycle with my friend. That's awesome. And then I came back. It just kind of like, all of a sudden, these different kind of gigs came to me. Friends that knew me and knew who had studied with Bob Moses, they started recommending me for gigs in the downtown scene in the East Village at clubs like the Knitting Factory and CBGBs and mm -hmm. stuff like that. And then I was introduced to punk and like punk jazz and like you know wow. things like the lounge lizards and john zorn you know yeah uh and you know the experimental forms of playing things that mixed up a lot of different genres and so that was uh when i realized i found my home it found me and, and, cool. and i and that changed my life to me that was the beginning of who i am now you know all that stuff was before with trial you know learning different ways of playing but like I started to figure out I'm an artist, I have a voice, like I have visions, I wanna try my own music, my own bands, and also play with other people, learn from them. So that's what it was like, that's going, and then that goes into meeting John Medeski through Bob Moses uh, at a, up in Boston, I was playing a gig with Bob Moses, and then we, he came to Brooklyn and was visiting, and we, we just jammed together in my loft in, in, in Dumbo. Mm. the duo and then we said this is cool. we, you know we were just like we connected and then from there we formed Medeski Martin Wood basically Chris came down and that, that happened very quickly and I was still in the Lounge Lizards and the John Laurie National Orchestra which is just a trio that was a very incredible 
vibrant, inspiring time. I even wrote a screenplay about it with with a friend uh, about this uh, this time period. So a lot was happening. A lot of yeah. things. I was going to say, it seems like so much crazy stuff was happening in the in New York City at that time. I, I love reading books about that that period. Even the the Beastie Boys came out with a book last year, and a lot of like the first half is all about what you're talking about in the early '80s about Danceteria Club mm-hmm. and Limelight. Yeah. And all the different genres, punk, freeform jazz scenes. And it must have been amazing just to be a part of that and kind of be, oh, you know, it's immersed so cool. in I, it. Ultimate school. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, totally. And this, you know, just such a, a community of just like different people, all like, in, you know, a lot in that area of New York. But some folks grew up in Brooklyn, you know, and like the Beastie Boys and stuff. And like, you know, we would, mm-hmm. we would be in the same studio with them sometimes they would be recording and we were recording and we would like run into them and uh when i met when i met phaedra when we first started dating she had like she was reading a copy of grand royale that was that was their (laughs) they had their magazine yeah Yeah. so they're they're definitely an example of like you know a whole other thing that was happening and what they're part of and how it was crossing over and it was an incredible, incredible time, really influential and still, still, you know, uh, I'm amazed and feel lucky to have been around it and, and involved with it, you know, and still in ways I am. I mean, it's still, you know, part of the downtown scene and that legacy for sure, you know. You're saying how like MMW came together kind of quickly and, you know, your first few albums are definitely jazz. That first album is acoustic jazz, you know, on the improv side, but then you you guys kind of built this following um, and ended up somehow in the jam band scene. How did, how did that happen? How did you, how were you able to cultivate in, uh, a, that, that audience, that following going from a jazz, the jazz scene into almost like, you know, the mainstream. <laughs> yeah. We had nothing to do with it. We, it wasn't in our plan. I mean, if anything, I was just like, this shit is so cool. Excuse me. I don't know if there's a family. No, PG. it's fine. It's fine. I was like, this is so cool. We're doing we have to do this in front of as many people as we can and we have to make a CD and we have to make a press release. And I was like the, the, the guy in the band who was more proactive and definitely DIY because I worked with these other musicians in the downtown scene that would make their own flyers, post them up, do their own television commercials. I mean, that's like John Lurie did. He was one of the first people, musicians to independently do a late night television, local commercial in, in different cities. Wow. And like advertise his record voice of Chunk, you know, and he was also an actor, you know, so he, he like he was a cult figure. So he, he but anyway, it was like the whole idea of like, we can do this ourselves. We don't need the industry, you know, like screw the industry like they're screwing us, you know, let's take this in our own hands. So I was the one who was like, well, let's just do this all ourselves. I'm going to make phone calls at different clubs and send demo tapes and make demo. That's another thing my dad helped me with. My dad being into all the having a, a TRS, whatever, 80, whatever it was, a Radio Shack computer, and then a Mac later. He, he had a database, and we, we collected oh, wow. names on the road, and we had a mailing list. And he kept that, and he printed labels out for us. And we he had a Xerox machine, and we would make our own postcards with the dates on them. And we printed up press kits, and we you know sent them out, kits to, like, clubs. And so with... I'm just I'm just tying my dad back in and how crucial how uh, you know integral he yeah. was to that to to really help and also my DIY spirit and John and Chris were like 
I don't know, you know, like, you know, and I would just say, we got to do this. So I, you know, I had to do a recording engineer, David Baker. I'd worked with Bob Moses through that jazz scene. And David was an incredible engineer. And like, he made a great record, Notes from the Underground, which was, yes, you're right. Josh was like more jazz, was piano trio based with some horns, uh, more acoustic. Uh, So, and then, you know, basically it was like getting in our van and playing these little clubs that I had played with some of these experimental bands, we would play college towns and the Knitting Factory tour, and we would go down a lot, mostly down south, southeast. And so I was familiar mm. with these places, and I just basically met the club owners or people who booked the club, and just remembered them and, and made an impression or not. I would then I would reach out to them, and and then would, they would have us play, and they didn't know anything about Modesto Martin Wood, but they trust we had met before, and they knew I was like one of these musicians from New York downtown scene, you know, they'd probably do something different and cool anyway. So then here we come and then we play for five people. We play for 10 people, you know, we play for 15 people. And then at a certain point, people were like, can we record your show? And we were like, at first, like, what is that? Like, I don't know. Is that cool? And we're like, yeah, we should just be open. And then I started making t-shirts. And like I said, we had like in between sets, we did the whole sign our mailing list, you know, so selling cool. t-shirts to pay for gas. Really like old school, you know, whether it's rock and roll yeah. or it's old school jazz with Art Blakey in a bus being <laughs> self-sufficient and selling merch and stuff uh, and sleeping on people's floors and, you know, coming in and out of all the wee hours through the towns and uh, playing for, you know, a few people. And then it built. And the tapers, the people who asked to tape us, right. we realized, you know, later were like all of a sudden people were showing up from like. We, how is this happening? And and then we realized there were tape trees and the and what we used to call you know the dead the deadheads had that that yeah. that that whole um, subculture of sharing tapes and what they call tape trees. And I guess that's it was they had their own databases before even the internet. And then when yep, the internet yeah. came around, the pre-internet, yeah, our fans already had that together. So like it was like starting to get shared in the in the beginning of the internet. So it was like, we really didn't, you know, I mean, of course we did the work, we showed up and we played and they were, and these people recorded us and shared our stuff. Then other bands like Fish became fans and then they started to play our music between their sets at Madison Square Garden or wherever they played. And people would be like hundreds and thousands of people would be like, who the hell are these guys? They got to be cool if they're playing, you know, they love Fish. And so they, it's like. To them, it's so sacred, everything that they, you know. So, yeah. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, we have all this whole other culture showing up. People who could kind of couldn't dance very well. We're like, who are these people? That <laughs> we're grooving our asses off. They don't look like they know how to dance. <laughs> but they're sure having a good time. Uh, yeah. And No, that's one of the best things I think about your fan base is it's so varied. Yeah. I got into MMW because a jam band at my high school played Bubble House at a couple of shows my dad put on, like street fairs and whatnot. So he ended up buying Shackman, and then I heard it, Who and I was, it, you know, that your dad, my dad bought Shackman. Oh, my that's, dad, that's my so dad cool. was very much. He was he was definitely a cool dude, and he he had his, he had a good ear for music, and so I I immediately took it and just became obsessed. And and going back to your T-shirts, you I think you guys have one of the most iconic logos there is for for a band logo. Thank I you. wore a, you know just the logo shirt at, in college one time when I was in, in one of the jazz bands, and a dude from an, from one of the other bands is like, "You're an MMW fan, man. That's <laughs> awesome." So it's like you know, I, love it. a, you don't even that, have, yeah. I think that definitely <laughs> helped. 
That definitely yeah. helps yeah. having you know that those uh, those iconic things. So I, that's you know that that basically is an amazing story because you know when you go back and listen to those first three albums, you can hear the band's sound evolving. But with Shackman, you guys just took off into a whole new direction, like into this hippie jam band vibe started happening. And, and I was always curious if it was a conscious decision to play that or and take advantage of it or it just happened naturally. So. Oh, no, it was natural. It always came from us, always came from our hearts, what we really needed to do. Uh, of course, there's a little bit of that. Oh, what the expectations of our audience and stuff mm-hmm. like that? We would struggle with that, or some of us in the band would struggle that with that more than others. And but in general, it was just like a natural progression. You know, I had introduced John and Chris to my friend in Hawaii. I had been there with Bob Moses again. Another connection with Bob Moses, mm. great jazz drummer. You know, uh, mentor of all of us actually at different times introduced me to this guy in Hawaii who he had met hitchhiking in Hawaii. And then this guy, Carl, you know, was also uh, an amateur drummer. And he would invite Bob Moses out to his uh, incredibly paradise-like spot in a treehouse on the coast of Big Island of Hawaii. And then Moses said, hey, let's, you know, let's go hang out. This is a really cool place. Illy B, come on, you know. And I went, you know, because I'm like, yeah, sure, I'm in Hawaii, you know, I'm like, I got nothing to do right now. Uh, and then we started hanging out there and playing music. And then, you know, Carl had a drum set, and that was where the shack was too. This shack, he he had this property a little bit up the hill. It was just a shack, a shitty, you know, tin roof shack. Hmm. And so, uh, at a certain point, I was like, John and Chris, you got to check this place out. It's so cool, like you know. Let's get the hell out of this, you know, winter hell here in the Northeast, you know, <laughs> and and we were at the time we were like we had actually also given up our apartments to tour in in the RV and we were kind of living out of the RV and sleeping on people's couches and we were like we could we could just go anywhere so we went to Hawaii and that's where Shackman you know that's where we made Shackman but there were maybe a year or two at least before that where we were like we would spend weeks and even months or two at a time hanging out together on the off tour season in the winter, January, February. And we would pay like a hundred dollars rent each for this shack. And, and we would just have all the instruments were there set up that we needed. The drums were there cause Carl was a drummer and there were amps and things. And then we were jamming and recording stuff. And then we were like, I was recording stuff with a DAT machine that I bought in Japan or first DAT machine. And, you know, whatever, Sony cassette record, whatever we did, we would record our jams. And then that, that, that was like, we can make a record here. Let's do this. And then that just at the time that evolved into Shackman, which was a really challenge. You know, that's a whole, that's a whole book in itself. Yeah. Just how the hell we got to Hawaii and how we convinced the record label that we were going to do a record there. And if they had known that we only had eight tracks, at, you know, we went with a 16 track thing and we only played recorded eight tracks they would have pulled the plug. Like, you know, they wouldn't even let us go and do the record there. They didn't want us to go anywhere on our own and make a record. So, uh, the whole thing was a triumph. And, uh, this was Gravivision Ryko disc at the time. Mm. And they were so lucky to like, for us to kind of strike that kind of, the music we were playing, how we recorded it, everything about it the timing and then and then that was it we jumped from like being written up on downbeat and jazz is to being uh 
uh, you know, have a great review in Rolling Stone magazine and end mm -hmm. up on Spin magazine and all these more rock alternative things. And the music was going in that direction. John started playing more electronic stuff. You know, we were getting experimental and expansive, but also s still grooving. Mm -hmm. And so that's another era, you know. So from Shackman was definitely a turning point, Josh. You're right. Shackman was for sure a turning point. So then um, I, I noticed this too, just from listening to your Blue Note albums, that those, first of all, was, I think, huge for you guys to be on Blue Note. And I'm sure that made you guys feel like super you know, legit and, you know, going to the next level. But also I was just curious because of that hip hop influence, since you were working with like Scotty hard, DJ logic, remix albums, and then you were doing the Illy B stuff. Were you growing up like a funk and soul fan, like the JBs and stuff like that? Or were you like really getting into like hip hop, like the golden age of hip hop in New York? <laughs> All of it, you know, cause I was clubbing, you know, already, you know, in the eighties, and I was listening to like WBLS on the radio, which was like, yeah. you know, it was like the R&B station. That was my introduction. And then, of course, all the music that was coming out, whether it was Grace Jones extended remix, you know, or mm. whether it was, uh, you know, um, Grandmaster Flash, you know, The Message, you know, nice. I had those LPs. I had that. I always was into always into the dance mixes. And then I was in the clubs listening to the DJ spin and hearing that and all that was evolving. So I was I, would, I, I definitely was in it in my own way, a part of it, experiencing it in clubs, dancing and, and getting into a bit of the freestyle. I wasn't a total graffiti, you know, uh, hip hop, you know, dude, like, you know, break dancing like to the max. But I was, you know, out there in clubs, freestyle and doing a little bit of that. I nice. really tuned into the music and really tuned into what the the DJ with the radio was playing and what the DJs were doing in these clubs in New York City at that time. So definitely the part of the whole hip hop uh, evolution, watching it happen and really influenced by it at the same time. Was it a challenge uh, to play on drums, though, like playing hip hop on drums or that kind of well, style? Well, I mean, it was it wasn't even called hip hop. You know, it was just sort of like, I don't know. I mean, I was at the same time I was, play, I was still playing to records like The Police Okay. And, you know, a new, you know, whatever, like you know, rock records and stuff, but also checking out um, other records, uh, Bob Moses, you know, that generation, Pat Metheny and all that and Brazilian music and, and, and uh, you know, uh, Afro-Cuban, uh, Caribbean stuff that was also fusion and dance, funk, Brazilian music was very like hip, danceable music. So all those things were influencing my playing. But it definitely wasn't something, yeah, it wasn't easy to just uh, incorporate that right away into my drumming. Mm. It takes time. It takes years of listening and years of playing with people who allow that to happen, <laughs> even like to let it out in that way mm -hmm. and, and you to allow it to happen, you know, and to, and to use all that vocabulary of, of different genres and things. So, uh, but it did influence me, the hip hop thing, and it, uh, and then what other what other forms were we talking about? We said hip hop and and the blue note thing. You were saying yeah, definitely we were like really feeling legit with the blue note thing for sure. Yeah. Uh, but what else was it? That I was just curious that if if you guys moved towards the hip hop influence, was it through the funk soul? Because that's you know at that era that oh, was probably oh, what yeah. people were crate digging kind of situation. It sounds like you were you were already a crate digger and all that stuff. Yeah. 
Yeah, in a way, I was my own kind of crate digger. I was in Tower Records in the world music section, but I was also we were mm. with MMW. We were we were revisiting and listening to the JBs. Like I grew up listening to Stevie Wonder, like was huge and awesome. And and James Brown was huge. It was just on the radio, and that was what we were listening to. Uh, as long as I was also having my brothers having their records, whether it was Hendrix. Mm-hmm. and Woodstock and like Elton John and all my brothers, like that stuff was there too. But, um, for sure, like, uh, you know, the, the, the soul and the funk thing came in, like it almost came in in a different way. When John and Chris and I get together, we had hundreds of CDs we shared as we were on the road driving for hours, sometimes eight mm-hmm. hours, sometimes two days to get somewhere. And we would just share all this stuff. We'd listen to Mahalia Jackson with Aretha Franklin. We listen, you know, to, 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 uh, you know, everybody, you know, every soul singer, you know, uh, in the world, uh, the deeper, deeper stuff, you know, even preaching stuff and, and all these things that were the influence. And then I was listening to stuff. I was even into Brandy. I'm like, check this out. Brandy. <laughs> right, she was right. like, you know, this bubblegum R&B singer. But I was like, I was into her at the time. And they were like, mm-hmm. man, it was like, Billy, wow. I never thought <laughs> you'd be into this teenage stuff. But I was like, it's no, good, check it's out good. the production. I mean, check out the thing, you know. And 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 they, I was hearing something that they weren't quite hearing yet. And then later they realized. And then of course, then then hip hop stuff like, you know, of course the BC Boys run DMC. All that was before. But when I was with them, there was things starting to happen like Far Side. Awesome. I'm like, check this out, Far Side. Amazing stuff. Amazing. This is the kind of thing I'm talking about, you know. Yeah. And then of course Lil Kim and all like that. There was a Lil yep. Kim record that came out that was pretty raw and dirty and like produced like in such a way, you know. Puff Daddy or what do they call P Diddy now and then Biggie, you know, Biggie Smalls, like they were producing this stuff and they were taking music and making dropouts. And then I was like playing those dropouts and I was like, nice. why can't I do that cool. with? And then John and Chris were like, oh, my God, whoa, where did that come from? <laughs> and so there you there you go. There you're getting like and then there's and then, of course, listening to JB's, you know, and playing like that for hours and hours in the shack in Hawaii, you know, have a guitarist friend. Our friend wow. Danny Bloom, who ended up on one record, he played amazing rhythm. We would just play JB style stuff for all night. Wow. Listen to the music. And so, yeah, there was that period of like, you know, absorbing that stuff, reabsorbing it. And, you know, I mean, even that, a tune like called Think. Yeah. You know, we called it, we titled the song called Think, but it was really just like, because we love Think, that JB's, you better think, right? But we were like, this was our version of it. It wasn't, we weren't trying to copy it, but it was definitely like the spirit of something about it. We had to like pay homage to it. Hey, that's this is this is great yeah. stuff, man. We love this. Great <laughs> we stuff. love this. Yeah. You know, being being that yeah. it's, a, it's a parent podcast, I got to bring up you know the kids' album, "Let's Go Everywhere," which mm-hmm. I you know I was a huge fan of the minute it came out, and I've now I can play it with my son, and he's actually we were you know getting ready for the interview. I've been playing it, and he he's obsessed with the train song. He loves uh, "Pat a Cake," which I think your one of your sons mm-hmm. or both your sons. Dakota. Yeah. Dakota's rapping. Yeah, he's he's, he's my, rapping yeah, on there. Rapping. Loves the pirate. The pirates yeah. won't take bath song. Um, oh yeah. And you know I know you guys 
were really proud of that album and had, I think in an interview you said, you know, our goal was to make a, a children's album, but one that, you know, wasn't downplaying the fact that it was a children's album. You want to put out high quality music for kids. And and the, the rest of that, you know, you guys recorded that 2007, put out 2008, but the rest of 2008 was crazy with the Radiolarians uh, stuff. So what like what was the impetus for both of those projects and like how did that year kind of unfold for you as a band <laughs> i can't believe you it's like you're telling me about something i don't even remember <laughs> like wow it all happened in 2008 <laughs> i'm not surprised well well the children's records that happened because uh we just had some john chris and our manager liz lived up in in the catskills like near woodstock and all that area and I still lived here in Jersey, you know, in Englewood. And they, there were people up there that lived up there that were in the music industry, as there always have been for a long time. And there was a couple that was like starting their own label. And, you know, this woman used to run V2, or for Virgin. She was like a big, crazy, you know, like, uh, what is that, you know, uh, A&R person. And then she kind of settled down with this with her husband and they had a kid and then they started their own label, little monster. And we, they we were one of the first bands that they, they asked to do something. And it really, they didn't really, you know, I don't think they really developed that label, but it was just for us. It was just like, okay, here's, here's a budget. Can you, can you make a children's record? And we're like, okay, we'll go in the studio for three days. Let's go. And, uh, let's just meet and show up and you know if you have any ideas bring them but like and that's what it was we we each of us we had some ideas you know uh, and uh but most of the record was totally we had no idea and we just experimented and we ended up laying tracks down and by the third day we had lots of material to build and mix and then add the kids and add our friend tim doing writing lyrics for Let's Go Everywhere and Pirates Don't Take Baths. Chris pretty much had his songs kind of banged out. I think this is the beginning of his, you know, uh, the Wood Brothers, kind of like him and his, his, you know, Oliver, like starting to play together and like get into songwriting. So this was his foray into that. And uh, my ideas, you know, uh, they were all in there uh, in the moment and some things that I brought in and getting John Laurie, as I said, to come in and he, he, he cameoed as Marvin Pontiac. I don't know. I don't know if you guys know who John Laurie is, but like, oh, yeah. there's a show on HBO now called sure. Painting with John. Oh, it's but, Painting, because uh, you know, I know Fishing in, with John yeah. is good, too. Fishing with John, yeah. Was in, and then, you know, he did, he was in the Jim Jarmusch films, uh, you yep. know, uh, Down by Law with Tom Waits. and Phenomenal movie. But anyway, so John's sort of like a cult figure, but he did a record called uh, Marvin Pontiac. Marvin Pontiac was a fictional, uh, fictitious character uh, who had apparently passed away or lived in a sane asylum. And uh, all the music was kind of like Afrobeat, kind of like hmm. these funny songs about pancakes and driving <laughs> his car. And, and he had guests like Angelique Kijo on there. But a lot of us played on that record. And uh, so he I asked him, could you could you do we just have this instrumental thing? It's like a, kind of like a you know, uh, a lullaby kind of thing. We had two parts and we had one more extended version where the beat comes in and it, you know, has sections and he just did a spoken word and, and, and he talked about the squall. Oh, that's a great like one. Little, yeah. The fuzzy little lint in your pocket is actually <laughs> part of this squall imaginary character. So cute, beautiful. And that was John Lurie just, but we gave credit to Marvin Pontiac. This fluff 
is the fur of a very special and unusual creature called the squalb. And the squalb moves so quickly that like most things that are really important in life, you cannot see it. And the squalb will jump from your shoulder to your shoulder to the top of your head so fast that you will have no idea that it's actually there. So those kind of things happened, we built after those three days. And it was just something where we were like, we really didn't know what we were gonna do. But like you said, Josh, for sure, we were like, we're not talking, we're not, we're not looking down, we're not dumbing down this for kids, you know, this cool. is like, and of course, like, we can, you know, we can have a, someone write lyrics, pirates don't take baths, and you know, we know it's for kids, so it's gonna be cool, but we didn't dumb down the music or that whole thing. Okay. Uh, Let's Go Everywhere was like, you know, something where that, I was like, that should be the title of the record, it should be, you know, that's, it's a journey, this whole thing, we're taking everybody on. And, uh, and I was, I was also like, I heard Johnny Cash singing, I've been everywhere, man. Mm. And I'm like, we got to do that, our own version of that, mm-hmm. you know, and we got to figure out a way to do it. And we did it. And those kind of things happen. Those are kind of, that's kind of typical MMW stuff too. Is like one of us will say, check this out. Maybe we can do something like that. And then we'll do it our own way. Sometimes we'll just write our own song based on that. Or other times we'll be like, let's just do our own arrangement of the song. Yeah. So like, yeah, that that was that happened magically. We didn't force it; it just happened magically. And I think it's one of our best. To be honest, I think it's one of our best records. It's a great, and, it's a great uh, album. Unfortunately, it, did, it hasn't gotten enough exposure. Uh, you know, I think there's a lot more kids that could enjoy that, and parents that could enjoy that record. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we'll put us. We'll put yeah, a snip well, in the episode. Definitely. And when I uh, when yeah, I was uh, when it came out, I was a substitute teacher at the time, and I would play it in almost every class that I would do especially younger kids and those kids would get oh, up and dance and, and play play but and and just like on the bat where's the music you know, that's right? a great that's a great <laughs> song it's like a freeze yeah. dance song um yeah. but the, yeah. with the radio larians like that was a huge jump that you guys took and mm-hmm. that i mean i i yeah. i think it's a great I, I saw two of the tour i saw the shows yeah. on two of the tours but that what was like the that must have been a huge leap for the band let's take as like cuz it's definitely it was a jump, you know, or, or it's not a jump. It was, yeah. a, it was a, yeah. you know, uh, a leap of faith pretty much. Yeah. It's, you know, we, we, like any, what I think with any great artists, uh, I'm not saying we're great or anything, but like a general, like real art, true artists, like they will, they will evolve and have different chapters, you know, and they're, they have to leave everything behind, you know, whether it's like Dylan going electric or it's miles going electric or miles, Quartet or Miles, you know, whatever it might be. So what record, you know, like there's like these periods in, in, in artists' lives where they have to just leave, you know, behind and, and move forward. And so it was just another concept for us. I mean, it started, uh, part of the thematic idea of Radio Larian started when I when we were in Tel Aviv. We were, we were, uh, we were, we were actually, uh, we played like one or two shows in Tel Aviv, but we went, all up and down, we played Sefat as well, like the southern part, we played a jazz festival and we played a club like Zappas in uh, Tel Aviv. And I was walking around this kind of hip, artsy neighborhood in Tel Aviv and I'm like, man, this bookstore looks so cool. You know, I'm, you know, I'm into design, you know, I did the logo and everything. So I'm like, always oh, half, half the time I'm doing the artwork for the band. I walk into the store and I'm like, 
this is an incredible book. It's Radio Larians, Ernst Haeckel's, like, you know, drawings of of sea life and microscopic life. And I've always been into that. Another thing influenced from my dad, he had microscopes and he, he showed me stuff in the microscope and it blew my mind and I was into that. I was into science and oceanography, marine biology. Uh, so that this really struck a note with me and I carried it with me on the road wherever we were. And then there's a certain point where we, the concept was like, hey, we have our own, We you know, these guys moved up to, to uh, Woodstock area, there's we ended up renting a place in Kingston, New York, which is our new studio, Shackston, uh, Kingston, Shackston, Shacklin mm, right. was Brooklyn. That's where we did the dropper yeah. and a couple other things. Uh, that was in Dumbo in Brooklyn, Shacklin, and we had Shackston. And in Shackston, it was like we have a our our sound engineer who toured with us living in the apartment above, so he was like the best engineer we could have. He'd just come downstairs and, and he also took care of our equipment and everything. And we were like, let's just do everything here. And let's just do like, you know, a, a series, you know? And uh, and then it ended up being a box set. And then I ended up making a film, Fly in the Bottle, which was about kind of like that period where we were touring South America. And then we were making Radio Larians. I was getting into filmmaking and Sweet. All that stuff culminating to that beautiful box set. Yes. And the Radio Larians was also an opportunity for us for, yeah, to go out and tour and play shows that were like not so structured. And then sometimes they were, but also sometimes we do an acoustic show uh, or more chamber music like show, you know, expansive stuff. And man, we got into some really different music in that one for sure. It was it was departure in a way and uh, evolution and it's evolution pun intended with Radio Larians being, you know, biology stuff. It's, it is a beautiful box set. I, I have it and it's, oh, it's definitely, you. yeah, it's, it's, it's one I treasure. It was actually one of the first vinyl, I think buys I ever did. It was before I, I got, you know, back into vinyl. And, um, so it's, it's, it's one I treasure and I'm definitely going to keep for the rest of my life. And I'm not selling that one on Discog. So <laughs> don't be tempted. Good one. <laughs> In a CMS earlier, uh, Creative yeah. Music Studio. Can you just tell our listeners a little bit about that and your, your vision for that? Yeah, Creative Music Studio was founded in 1971 with uh, this incredible jazz musician, Carl Berger, who plays vibes and piano. His wife, Ingrid Sertzo, is a singer. And Ornette Coleman, who everybody knows, is like changed music <laughs> for jazz. <laughs> like, amazing. It started really up in Woodstock and established there in the 70s and 80s where people could go up and hang out and spend like the whole summer or, you know, three weeks, six weeks at a time. It was like a retreat and uh, you could hang out with Don Cherry or Ola Tunji or, uh, you know, or, or Dave Holland, Jack DeJanet, Pat Metheny, a lot of jazz people, also classical people. And uh, it's, a, it's a real legendary um, uh organization that basically, you know, uh, shares all different philosophies on making music in different ways and improvising. And 
and it's open to all forms of music. It's it's you know this is the thing. It's, you're not they're not teaching you jazz or any genre. They're basically working with all of that, you know. So it welcomes people from all backgrounds to come and 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 study or 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 listen or play with you know these you know, these icons of, of might might be jazz or classical or and they come up and they hang out and so um five years well more than five years ago maybe 10 or eight years ago uh we were doing camp mmw up in up in big indian in the catskills uh mm. five years in a row we did this one week camp mmw and we had about between 50 and 80 people fans would come and they would live with us and we would have Chris and John and I would be teaching in different in the barn and here and I that. sadly never made it to one. Yeah, yeah I'm sorry. I always <laughs> wanted to go, but I never made it. Yeah. <laughs> and so we would have people come up, John Schofield or Mark Ribot or, you know, uh, friends of ours would be guests, Sierra Baptista. And, uh, and uh, one time John invited Carl and Ingrid from Creative Music Studio. I knew nothing about them. Uh, and I met them then and they were just kind of having a comeback Um the, the organization was kind of like not not like really that active in in the 90s and to 2000s when we met and so after that they made a little impression and then later they asked me to teach a master class up there in the same place they started teach having workshops there themselves i was really blown away by you know their approach to teaching people how to play and how to how to jam and how to you know make music and it was a very really uh mind heart opening experience and i was already into different methods of teaching i had my rhythmic stuff the, the rhythm book and all these other things the stridulations you know the kunga thing you mentioned josh like all these things of connecting people with uh, with rhythm and also like with improvising games and so that was like uh then then i was so i was just kind of fell in love with creative music studio and what they were doing and they ended up bringing me in as artistic director and then not uh, then four years ago, Carl, the founder, the president, and, you know, handed it to me, you know, and said, wow. like, you are like the next, you're perfect, you know, and I'm getting older and we need new, you know, a new direction, new life. So since then, I've been basically bringing it back to relevance in a way and sharing it with my fans and bringing lots of different artists in to teach conducting workshops in New York City, upstate in, in the Woodstock area, sometimes at my place here. It's growing and it's, um, yeah, it's just by my mission, my personal mission is to just help people find their own way of playing music, find their own voice, you know, uh, find their own style and help them to get there with that and to yeah. break them out of any conditioning they've gotten whether it's academically or it's just like how things were drilled into them and help them to break out of that because I went through all of that myself of thinking I should be playing this way, I should be playing that way, I'm not good enough, I'm this and that, I can't improvise or whatever, I want to play classical music and I'll never be a classical musician because I stink and, and all of a sudden, you know, uh, so, so going through all those failures and I have a book called Wandering that like has all these essays kind of about going through the process it, it, this is my mission it's like sharing with, helping everybody like just be comfortable with experimenting and starting to get comfortable with jamming for some people they call it jamming improvising for others spontaneously composing or just feeling comfortable in a setting where you can make music with people bringing them together in a community like the downtown scene in new york people from all backgrounds crazy freaks whoever they are 
they're all like working together or doing their own thing. Community, community. And so uh, that's my mission. The Creative Music Studio is this beautiful nonprofit. It's been around for 50 years that now I can apply that philosophy also without me being the center. Like, I don't want to be the center. Like, I still want to do my work and I'll do some of it there. But it's basically just having a place for people to share ideas and bring in other other musicians, you know, to to share their way of making music. You know, how is it for this musician? You know, how is it for that one? And then you, the people get you know, deeper insight, master classes, performances. So that's definitely uh, I'm in the middle, really, of like establishing something for for the long term. I think I have another five years of just getting it to where I can hand it off to the next generation rebuilding it and making it, you know, just like for, you know, making, make it this, this place that everybody can just share ideas and, and feel like they're part of a family of creative people, you know, and just, and finding their own thing yeah. there. Yeah. That's awesome. And I just want to say on a personal note, you mentioned about, you know, ha- helping people find their creativity and, and figure out what, who they are as a musician. I know when I had the few lessons with you 10, 12 years ago, uh, when you when you sat down with me, you kind of helped me center myself and said, "Don't worry about everything else. You figure out what you you want to be as a drummer. You find out your strengths. Figure out what what's best for you, and then everything will happen." And, and it definitely helped me uh, in, in my my progression. So thank you for that. Oh, wow. you're welcome. That's what it's all about. And the thing, and the other thing about about that approach to to sharing, getting people to feel their own feelings and their and not be influenced by all the other voices and the conditioning and, and, you know, following their heart, you know, is that it carries through into everything else in your life. That's what it's about. And one of the, one of the slogans or whatever phrases that we use was, it came from uh, Lester Bowie from uh, our ensemble Chicago, who used to also uh, used to teach at CMS. He said, artists teach music, artists teach people how to live. And I think that's really what it's about. It's a very Perfect. simple statement, but what it means is like, I'm teaching you to listen to your heart and to follow through on the crazy ideas that you may have so that it'll take you somewhere that your heart follows. And then, then you apply that to everything else in your life, raising a family, building a house, making a living, making choices, you know, yep. switching careers, you know, all that stuff. It's all interconnected. We're all connected. That's another song of the children's record. It's another yeah, great song from that album. Yes. So I, you know, you put out two albums. I think, or definitely one album uh, uh, last year or two years. Yeah. Is it two years ago? Guilty. Guilty. Was that twenty yeah. twenty or was that twenty twenty? Beginning of the pandemic came out. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and it was you know, talking about tape loops that you were talking about. That's that 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 was great. Um, do you have any you know upcoming projects? You know whether it's solo material or if MMW is getting back together or if um, you know any of the other side projects you put out in the past uh, you know decade or so. I'm so busy with um, with kind of like getting Creative Music Studio like established uh, and applying some of those things. Uh, but I'm also making connections with a lot of uh, different musicians and younger generation, as well as, you know, reconnecting with musicians that are that are my mentors. And uh, it's I'm at this stage right now where I'm, yeah, I'm ready to collaborate with with some of these younger musicians and some musicians I've wanted to play with for a long time. So I think my next record is going to be or records is going to be a combination of this collaborating and seeing my 
what I've been developing over the years, even through the cool. pandemic, developing stuff. So uh, I think it just, you know, it's just going to be more of like, yeah, following my heart and, uh, you know, making, playing, and actually I'm playing like on Guilty, I'm playing, you know, bass, a lot of bass and, mm -hmm. and, and drums and, and yeah. a little bit of piano and some sounds, but uh, that's something that I'm getting more and more confident with and, and, and enjoying like just setting up these structures where I can have guests come in and play. And so, uh, yeah, it's going to be, you know, just more of that, a mix of like taking stuff to out to the stratosphere with like, uh, experimental concepts of sound and music and then just straight up groove things that also do that, you know, uh, just in my own way so but i don't have anything specific i don't have any oh yeah i'm gonna have this record as date this date everything's still up in the air as far as scheduling but there's lots of things down the pipeline that that are gonna happen you know um gig wise i just you know we just had a week canceled of a residency i had at the stone which is now in the new yeah. school john zorn mm. stone i had my week residency uh but they just they're not opening up the school to the public until later in February. And then March CMS will have a week there, but that'll just be different bands that I had curate, mostly women led bands, really cool stuff. Oh, cool. Uh, but uh, I, I can't really articulate anything specifically right now. I want to like write another book called Rhythmic Harmony hmm. and which will be, you know, just a continuation of uh, like rhythmic uh, strategies, but also, a deeper kind of musical compositional like you know philosophy on 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 stuff uh artwork yeah. visual artwork you know i'm Good. excited to do that i've been doing nfts you know i've been Saw that. really enjoying yeah. like creating digital art you know an open c leb art i think it is um but uh but it's like you know just i'm always always creating and teaching more i'm teaching at the new school uh, I'm teaching privately. I'm having an incredible time connecting with people of all ages and, and helping them like Josh when we had our lessons. It's, it's, it just continues. My mission continues of sharing that stuff. And, you know, you run into students that blow your mind, too, and all of a sudden you end up having a relationship with them and helping them and also maybe sometimes even working with them. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I recently had a student come that studied with Bob Moses a little bit, and I almost cried when I heard him play. Because I was like, it reminded me of, it was like a new Bob Moses being born mm. and not in a copycat way. It was like he got, it just, those, those things for me, I live for. So I'm more and more about the education and the creativity that comes from that and the learning that comes from that. So from there, things will be published, records will come out, collaborations will happen, <laughs> you know. Awesome. For sure. We like to end each episode just to talk about some music that, you, you know, our guests are into. Um, I don't know if you're, is there's any songs or artists that you're kind of want to shout out that you've been listening to or being inspired by lately? Well, I've been listening to the Gregorian chants. I've been really into choral music. Mm. I've been listening to a lot of Gregorian okay. chants, which are usually like, you know, uh, things from the church, from the, from the West, you know, from Europe. been listening to swans the swans they're just swans not the swans but swans really cool dude yeah. oh, yeah.
more darker kind of like uh, gothic kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. I've never heard them, but I've always seen them name checked and stuff over the years. It was funny. I really got deeply into Sinead O'Connor. Wow. I was like oh, some wow. of her stuff from the from the eighties, you know. Uh, oh my God, the way she sang, where she put certain things in the lyrics, just like tear tear your heart open. Mm-hmm. It's just so incredible. Awesome. That's another person that my dad recorded with, by the way. He played on her really record. Cool. And he, he came home. I don't know where, but he, I was like, oh, yeah. He's like, yeah, I just did another record date. And I'm like, oh, cool. Who'd you, who was it with? He's just, oh, that, that, that woman from Aliens. You know that movie Aliens? <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> Sigourney Weaver is a singer? Like, and he's like, you know, she bald with the combat boots. The, bald, oh the hair shaved. With it's the so funny. And I'm like. Oh, that you, Sinead O'Connor. I was so funny. Was like, <laughs> that's how out of it he'd be. And he just like thought that was, you know, yeah. that's pretty crazy when you hear stuff yeah. like that. But anyway, yeah, so he played on her, he played on her record. It's just like, he's so oblivious. He just shows up at the date, yeah. you know, just another job. Just read the music. <laughs> yeah. But uh, anyway, Sinead O'Connor, I'm going to end on that, which is very unusual cool. to say. And and my heart yeah. goes out to her. She lost, uh, yes. she lost oh, her yeah. son. Yeah. So sad. It's so hard. My heart, you know, we're talking about dads and family and like, there's so much, there's a lot of people struggling and having a hard time. And, you know, we have to like, make sure we support everybody, our friends and, and their kids and whatever we could do. It's just so such a rough thing. Yeah. The whole mental health thing with, like you were saying with education, I've, it's like education and mental health go hand in hand. And I feel like you're an important part of that too. So yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean that, and that's what I think. Community is really important. Exactly. Community. Yep. We've got to we've got to remember that, you know, and not not in like in a kumbaya way, and like yep. Like a, well, yeah, in a kumbaya way, both, sure, both. sure, yeah. in the good kumbaya way. But what I'm just saying is like not whatever, wherever you can bring people together. I don't care whether it's through the church or it's through you know uh, an experimental art and you know anti-establishment scene. Whatever it is, there's a place for your kid. Mm-hmm. You know to feel part of something, you know, yep. and not against something. And I think we've really like had a rough time with all this division politically and all this stuff going on. But okay. part of it is just like, you know, we, the part of it is just the challenge of life and surviving this stuff. And yep. Yeah. So look out for your neighbors, look out for each other, you know, uh, uh, what could I say? You know, community, yeah. let's keep the community thing going, share what we're doing and, it's great that you guys are doing the show. I think it's really special. Like I really can understand it more now that I'm with you. We're talking about these, these things, yeah. you know, uh, well, thanks, thanks for, for coming, coming on, man. man. I mean, yeah, it's, you thanks know, for having me. It was, this was, so it was a great conversation and, you know, we really appreciate it and obviously love everything you've been putting out and, uh, you know, big fan of, of everything. And I, I, thank you for giving me, you know, some great music and some great inspiration, you know, as a musician and, and uh, you know, throughout my life and just some music that I, I just cherish for forever pretty much. So yeah. thank you for coming well, on. You're very, you're very welcome. And thanks for listening. And if there's anything I could say, it's the most important thing about being a musician, being a human being is listening, listening to the other people, what they have to say, what they're playing or what they have to say. 
listening is so important, I realize. You know, so thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode and special thanks again to Billy Martin for coming on to the show. We had a great time talking to him and we hope you enjoyed it as well. If you want to follow Billy on social media, you can find him on Instagram at Billy Beats or just go on Facebook and look up Billy Martin. You can also visit BillyMartin.net to check out all of his solo music, art, books and more things that he's been involved with. If you'd like to check out the Creative Music Studio, you can go to CreativeMusic.org. Finally, if you haven't already listened to Modesky Martin Wood, I can't recommend them enough, especially their children's album, Let's Go Everywhere. It's an album all ages can enjoy. Whether this is your first time or your 20th time, we really appreciate everyone checking out the podcast and would love for you to subscribe to the show. And if you like or even love the podcast, please go ahead and give us an honest review. You know, those things really do help. Or, you know, just tell a friend about us. That also helps. If you'd like to follow us on social media, we're on Instagram and Twitter at Dad Rocks Pod, as well as on Facebook. And you can find us there by searching up Dad Rocks Podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or any show ideas for us, or just want to give us a shout, you can always email us at dadrockspod at gmail.com. If you want to check out the music you've heard on this episode in full, we have a playlist which should be linked in the podcast description for you. Once again, thanks for listening. And remember, dads, you rock. Thank you.